Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to uh, look at the first 18 verses in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. So if you have those open and ready. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and we're glad you're with us. In this series of the Gospels, we're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're combining them together, telling the story of Jesus in the best frame of reference time-wise that we, can, uh, that we believe uh, it occurred. And what we've been looking at for the last uh, 38 weeks is the story of who Jesus is, what it reveals about him, what it reveals about God's plan for the world, and how it welcomes us into it. And part of that plan is looking at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a famous passage of scripture that many people are accustomed to, but it's really Jesus' kingdom vision. And we're going to be looking this morning uh, at the sixth chapter, the middle of that particular sermon, as Jesus introduces what his kingdom platform is and how his kingdom is the exact opposite of what the world's kingdom is. And as we look at that, I want you to remember that it's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that we find the key teaching of this. If we get this teaching right, everything else falls in line. And that's when Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting about that particular passage is how it relates to you and I. You see, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees would have been the gold standard of religious pursuit. They did all the right things. They weren't a, a group of sinners. They did the right things. They were in the temple. They knew the word of God. They did the practices of what a believer would have practiced. They did all of these things. And Jesus uses them by saying that if you don't surpass them, you're not a part of my kingdom. Because the Pharisees and the scribes did everything externally. It was with their hands and their feet and their mouths and their, their bodies. They lived out the practices of God, but they had nothing on the inside. There was no connection to him. There was no relationship. And Jesus said, in my kingdom, it will come from within you, and then it will show through that. Let me just rephrase it this way. If you don't get your heart right, your behaviors may be right and absolutely wrong. You can do God things and never have any love, respect, or admiration for God. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And Jesus is saying that in my kingdom, God doesn't want you to do external things so that people are impressed by you. He wants you to give him your heart. Several months from now, we're going to come across a passage where Jesus said, you cast out demons, you perform miracles in my name, but I did not know you. What's he talking about? He's talking about external actions that have no internal motivation, no internal connection. For many of us, we try to change our behaviors. We try to do the right things, but we don't desire to do the right things. Jesus said, I've come to change your heart so that your behaviors will flow from the goodness of your heart, not just from your choices to behave a certain way. Nod your head if that makes sense at all. When Jesus builds his kingdom, he starts it from the inside out. And by doing that, he says, your righteousness will surpass that of the externals when you give me your heart. The other thing I want to point out that we've talked about in chapter 5 is it just introduces that Jesus is talking about real life stuff. 
Some people dismiss Jesus as an old teacher from another day and time where it made sense then. But, you know, we're just more evolved. Uh, we have more dignity. We, we know more. So some of the things Jesus taught were great back then because they were simple people, but we're different. Be very, very careful. You see, Jesus says in the first 12 verses of chapter 5 that my invitation into my kingdom is for anybody, even those you never would count in. It's not just... It's, it's not just for the up-and-comers, it's for the down-and-outers too. He said, blessed are the poor in heart, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who uh, hunger and thirst, blessed are those who never catch a break. They're welcomed into my kingdom. And then he goes right after real life. He says, let's talk about anger and contempt. Let's talk about the kingdom person and how they value another person when they're angry or when they have reason to believe they're better than somebody else. What about lust? What about the natural desires that catch our minds and our, our, and our hearts and lead us in directions we don't want to go? When we see something we're attracted to and we desire it, what does the kingdom heart do then? What about broken relationships, broken promises, destroyed covenants? How do we respond to those? What about deceit and manipulation? When one or two words can set you up to be successful by manipulating another person for whatever advantage you gain. Then last week we talked about what, what about revenge and retaliation? What about when it's your right to get even? What does the kingdom heart do then? And Jesus has talked to us about real life. Would you agree with me this morning that those issues that Jesus faced in his day are the same issues we all face today? It's the same thing. It it hasn't changed. It's not old-timey. It's real. Jesus will always talk about real life because he is the one who came from heaven to earth, to live in real life, to understand the nature of humanity so he could lead us out of this. But it starts from the inside out rather than just the outside presented. And this is what we've learned. The challenge switches, though. This is one of those moments every now and then you'll hear a preacher like myself say that we don't like where this particular thought was broken from one chapter to the other or there's a verse uh, that happens that's been broken up into two thoughts instead of left in its entirety. But I think whoever did the designation, chapter 6 is a good delineation from chapter 5. Because what's taken place is, in chapter 5, Jesus talked about the way we live out the kingdom between one another. In chapter 6, he talks about how we live out this ethic between God and ourselves. He's made the transition from you and me to me and him. And in light of that, we're going to look at the major point Jesus makes, the theology of it, And then very, very briefly, I'm going to show you three illustrations he uses that all make the same point. So let's begin. The quest for approval, escaping the trap of others' opinions. When Jesus begins to talk about our relationship with God, he says the number one threat that we face is when we play our relationship with God out in the public audience. When we do what we do with God for the sake of other people's opinions. And he cautions us about that. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is one of the clearest statements Jesus makes. And probably could just say that and we're, we're done. But I'm a preacher. You know that's not going to happen. He says, you'll have no reward If you do acts of righteousness, remember what righteousness is. I'm going to keep repeating this until it just becomes something we're all familiar with. Righteousness is when I'm right with God and I'm right with man. A righteous life is not just a life that does things. 
but it's motivated by being right with God, having a right relationship, an open, honest, intimate relationship with God, and then an open, honest, intimate relationship with, with humans. Remember that the kingdom ethic is to value all people, regardless of what we think they're worth. To value all people equally and made in the image of God. Jesus said, be careful that you don't do acts of righteousness by men to be seen by them because God then has no reward for you. The scribes and the Pharisees were famous for this. This is a passage we'll talk about in a few months, but in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus points out they love to dress up. They love to put on the paraphernalia. They love to walk through the streets. They love when people call them teacher. They love when people call them rabbi or father. They love these expressions. They love when people love them. I know we're nothing like that, are we? The hunger for approval, to be noticed. When we get caught up in what others think of us and the value they place on us, if we're not careful, we can devalue what God thinks of us and the value that God places on us. Sometimes our relationships with one another can become more important and more motivating than our relationship with God. And this is what Jesus is cautioning. But I'd like to correct what I think are are two flawed understandings of this teaching because you hear it a lot in church. This can become legalism. We can be worse than the Pharisees about what Jesus is about to teach us. Here's what he's not saying. He's not telling us that we're to hide our actions. Jesus is, is not saying that if you do something and someone notices it, it's been null and voided. He's not saying that at all. We're not supposed to hide our actions. There are actions that we are to do if people notice or not. The second thing is, we need to ask ourselves why we want to be noticed. If we are noticed, was that the satisfaction we wanted? Was that what we were after ultimately? You see, the issue is not, are we seen doing a good deed, but are we doing a good deed in order to be seen? It's a simple theological truth. Because God says, I will give you, this is one of the most dangerous things you can hear God say to you, but he'll say this, I'm going to give you what you want. If you want people to think well of you, you can have that. If you want me to think well of you, you can have that too. You can't have both. And that's what it comes down to. God responds to our expectations accordingly. If it doesn't concern him, it won't concern him. So this is what we have. Do we do what we do, acts of righteousness, so that people will think well of us? Or because God deserves it from us. First Chronicles 28. Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. It comes down to the why, not the what. And this is where the relationship with God plays out. Jesus is going to use three illustrations He's going he's to talk about what it means to live a life for an audience of one. He uses three common illustrations that are all good things in and of themselves. All are God-given disciplines. All are things that we do, and we do them to draw closer to God. But Jesus said, be careful that you don't take the things that are to draw you closer to God and the motivation be so that people will think, wow, he's really trying to draw closer to God. Because we've been warned we will have our reward. See, Jesus gives these, what people do, to have time with God, to draw their attention to God, and to draw their hearts closer to God. So he talks about them. He talks about being generous toward need. This is something that we do. This is something that Jesus did. 
He met needs. He was generous toward people in need as a testimony to his love for his father. Verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Pause there for a moment. They've received their reward, singular reward. It's interesting, that's the term that's used here. They got the one thing they wanted. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Who do you want to reward you? You see, this is a complicated thing. He talks about the term, some of you have a uh, translation, you might have the King James Bible with you this morning, or you're used to that, and it says when you give alms. Alms were gifts that people gave in the community to meet needs. We do something here at Christ Church, and I don't want to say this boastfully and negate everything I'm preaching on. I want to say it for those of you who are not familiar with Christ Church and you don't know what some of our terminology is. We have a ministry here called Right Here, Right Now. And that ministry is intended to bless people in the community in the name of Jesus Christ. No strings attached. Just God's people loving on God's people. Whether they're believers or not, the kingdom ethic is to value all people. So what we ask is that each and every week, some people do it monthly, some people do it electronically, but what we ask is each and every week, every family bring $1 for every person in their family. Family of four, we're asking you to bring four $1 bills. Every single $1 bill that's placed in the offering plate at this church is given to our Right Here, Right Now ministry to dispense that week into the community meeting needs. It might be providing rent for a family that's down on their luck or who've lost their jobs. It might be providing a, a stay for someone while they have a family member in the hospital. They can, they can stay in Kansas City or St. Louis or wherever at a hotel. There's hundreds of things. We provide food and medicine and counseling. We do as much as we can to bless people. And that's not boasting on us. This is what God's people do. So we created this mechanism to do this. And each and every week, it's amazing. This church will give anywhere from $1,600 to $2,000 a week that we can go into the community and provide these things for. But, but you'll never see Christ Church walking through town with a big golf check handing it out in front of the globe. Hey, everybody, look what we did. Because you know why? We'd have our reward already. The publicity we would have gotten would not be worth blessing people in the name of God so they receive They receive praise. And some people, when, when they see this, they think, well, what is this right hand and left hand? Well, the scholars tell me from my research that what Jesus was pointing out is when they would go into the temple area, there was an alms box for them to give their offering to. Not, not the offering like we just took, but they're right here, right now giving. And as they would go in, it would be to their right hand side. All Jesus was doing was drawing on a common expression to simply say, when you put the money in, just don't make a big deal about it. Not like the Pharisees do, who said, everybody notice. I was a kid, I think I was third grade. Uh, my grandpa had me come over and help. He was teaching me how to cut lawns. He had a bunch of widows in his neighborhood uh, and they were paying $10 a lawn and so he called me and said, do you want to make some money? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm going to teach you to cut grass. I didn't realize what that meant. I thought it meant knock down the weeds. It meant do it his way. So he was giving me these lessons on how to cut the lawn properly and I got my money. Well, my grandfather wouldn't let the old ladies pay me he, that's what he called him, he paid me. He had a jar of silver dollars and he would give me 10 silver dollars, which was awesome. And as I was leaving his house one day, he said these words very simply to me. You know, one of those dollars goes to Jesus tomorrow, right? 
And I was like, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> okay. So I took my silver dollar to church. I was sitting next to my friend Robbie Martin, and we were like in the third row from the front, and it was offering time, and the offering plate came by. We had those. Some of you who grew up in church might know what I'm talking about. We, they were about 25 pounds a piece made of solid wood with a little green felt on the bottom, right? It took every ounce of your energy to pass those down without a hernia. And I remember being a little kid, that plate came by, and they handed it in front of me, and I reached in my pocket and pulled out my silver dollar, and I flipped it up in the air. And it hit that plate. We were in the third row, so no one was ahead of us. And it hit that plate with, and just clanged around that plate. It was awesome. Robbie laughed. I laughed. I'm like, score! My father was across the other side of the, yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? My dad was on the other side of the room collecting offering. And I heard these words in front of God and everybody in that church. Take it out. Take it out now. I had to go to the end of the row and pull my silver dollar out of the plate and put it in my pocket. We get in the car on the way home. Ooh, that was the second best sermon I ever heard that day. (laughs) My dad said, don't you ever, ever draw attention to yourself in worship again. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. About five or six years later, when I was a little bit older and felt like they weren't going to kill me, I said to my mom, because sometimes my dad would get on me hard. I, Heather gives me that look every now and then, too, when I get on the boys harder than she thinks I ought. And I thought maybe that day my mom would have saved my life. And I said to mom, what do you think when dad did that? And all my sweet mother said to me was, you were lucky it was him and not me. I was like, okay, I now know. <laughs> Marilyn can get rough. This was good. But at the end of the day, I did. What an idiot I was. I had taken a sacred moment We're honoring God for him giving me a grandpa who would find me a job and help me do it and give me $10 for doing what I probably should have done for free. Instead of having that moment, I made it about me and I flipped a coin up and it got a laugh. I got my reward. Robbie Martin laughed. And then I got my earned reward later. I was grounded. You see, all because my parents taught me a valuable lesson, I learned the hard way. I got the reward I wanted and it wasn't worth anything. You see, one scholar said, Jesus is warning us that when the ego gets bloated, the soul may be starving. And that's what took place. This whole moment of taking a, a what should be about me and God and turning it into me so that other people can think about me rather than about God is rough. The second illustration he gives is intimacy with God. There are moments where we become intimate with God and it's found in verses five through eight. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is difficult in our culture because it's hard to get people to pray. Praying's not productive. I'll do my own, and when I can't get it on my own, I'll ask God to help. And we're going to talk about prayer more. In fact, at this point in the scripture, you'll notice that Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to pull that section out and talk about that next week. It's just too big to handle all in combined. But I wanted to show you these illustrations to show you that even when it came to prayer, Jesus said, don't make prayer about yourself. The, The, my goodness, the, Pharisees of that day would draw attention to themselves. 
in the small little church I grew up in, in South Bend, Indiana, when we were kids, we'd go on Sunday nights. My, my parents would let us sit in the back because there was about 20 people there. And it was a real small thing. It wasn't that exciting. And they, they had to make us go. So my two older brothers and myself would often sit in the back row on Sunday night and do our homework. One of the benefits of going on Sunday nights was the entire church, all 20 of them would go to Bob Evans, which is like, that's an old statement, isn't it? So Sunday night church and Bob Evans, some of you have to Google it. But anyway, we would go after church to fellowship and people, they just enjoyed one another's company. It was the church being beautiful, but they just hang out and have a nice, and I loved the cherry cobbler you could get at Bob Evans. So I knew I was getting free cobbler every night. That was awesome. So we'd go on Sunday night. We had a guest preacher who was a friend of our preachers and he preached that Sunday night. So we had more people than normal. So a bunch of us went to Bob Evans and my brothers and I were sitting at a little booth by ourselves, still doing our homework and just hanging out while the folks talked. And this preacher got up in the entire, uh, got up in the entire restaurant. Excuse me, everybody, shh. We're about to pray for a meal. Please bow your heads, close your eyes. And he prayed. Now I knew Dale Christian well enough to know this was not going to go well. So my brothers and I, we didn't close our eyes. We didn't even hear that prayer. We were watching my dad. And my dad was shaking his head, giving that look he normally gave to us. It was nice someone else was receiving it. <laughs> and he said, they're shaking his head. We get in the car and Scott goes, what'd you think of that, dad? My dad goes, ridiculous. Don't you ever, don't you ever allow that to happen again. He said, when you ask people who don't know God to talk to God, you've just ruined prayer. It's another lesson I learned from my old man about don't be a show off. Nobody likes a show off. Nobody wants to be around a show off. Can I have an amen? Is that true? Yeah. When people want attention, what's the last thing in the world you actually want to give them? Attention. And Jesus said, don't make this about you. Giving, praying, it's about God. Then he continues on to talk about sacrifices willingly. He gives a third example. And this one, a little more peculiar, because prayer is one of those things we carry with guilt. We don't pray enough. You ask any Christian, I don't pray enough, as if the amount of prayers makes God love you more. It doesn't. He loved you when you were his enemy. He can't love you more. Then it comes to fasting. Verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men but by your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will repay you. This whole motivation is not the what we're doing. If you make Christianity about the what I do, you may miss that the important thing is why do you do it? Fasting was this thing where people denied themselves something they enjoyed so they could focus on something greater. Most of us think fasting is about food. It wasn't just about food. It was fasting away from things. It was getting away from crowds. It was getting away from media. It was getting away from those things that distract you. If you feel like, I need to pray more, why aren't you? That's not a guilt statement. Ask yourself the question. Probe deeper than the surface level answer. I'm busy. You're busy doing what? What are you busy doing that is greater than prayer? What are you busy doing that's actually accomplishing anything like the power of prayer could accomplish? And those things that are keeping us from praying, from being connected to God in an intimate way should be fasted from to renew ourselves. Jesus got away from crowds. He got away from food. He got away from temptations. He made steps to spend time away. They made it about themselves. 
I shared first hour when Lyndon Johnson was president in the 1960s, Bill Moyer. Some of you might remember Bill Moyer from PBS. Uh, he was a strong believer. And uh, Johnson knew that he was a Christian, but he was a very humble man. And there was one particular time there said, I don't know if it was a cabinet meeting or whatever it was, but Moyer was in the room and Johnson being a gruff personality said, Moyer, pray. So Bill Moyer bowed his head and started to pray. And he said he was in about two sentences in his prayer. And then across the room, the gruff voice of President Johnson said, I can't hear you. Moyer said he looked up and he said, I'm not talking to you, sir. And he went back to praying. <laughs> it's the right at- attitude and atmosphere. It's prayer and fasting and spending time away. May the God who surrounds us in secret see you in secret. So fasting is an exercise that takes away the distractions from us being the kind of people we want to be. Eliza Daly said to me after first hour, he goes, you might even want to mention social media when you talk about examples. And I thought, oh yeah, I do. Think about how much boasting goes on about what we're doing for Jesus. Be really careful when you put your spiritual walk out in front of other people with more than an intent to encourage them to walk to. I think we could learn that today. There's so much bragging going on on Facebook and Twitter and other places about, look, what amazing things I'm doing. You may have gotten your reward on the first retweet. It's not what we do. It's why we do it. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. They have their reward. We are to be free from the control of other people's opinions when it comes to our relationship with God. We choose to be free from the control of what other people think about it. I've thought back over the last six months of the number of things I may have said in sermons that I could possibly have used as an example of something God's doing in my life that might be beneficial to you, and I realized that half the audience could perceive that as, well, yep, preacher does it, preacher prays. Yeah, I hope that hasn't been the case. I hope you understand that the encouragement of the Word of God today is for us to stop and ask ourselves why. So let me give you a series of why questions. This is not to induce guilt. In fact, at the end of the day, if we can answer the why question, we are more open to God than if we don't, which is what we want, right? To have a relationship with God that's connected, something that's not just Sunday mornings, but something that's real and legitimate. And as we draw close to God, there's parts of my relationship with Heather I would never share from stage. It's between, it's just between the two of us. And whether you agree with it or not, or agree with the way we parent, or agree with the way we spend our money, or we do this with our time, it really doesn't matter. I can't make it about everyone's approval. I can only live with that girl in relationship with God. Ultimately, that's probably where that needs to stay. So I'd like to ask you a series of questions. Why'd you come this morning? Because you always have? Because people know you do? Because someone might ask you if you didn't. Why did you give financially today? Why did you take from what was yours and give it to God? Why do you sing? Why do you do nice things for your neighbor? Why do you pray for someone when they're sick and they ask you to pray and you say, I'll be praying? You see, it's not the what we do. The what we do is important, but without the why we do it, it may not have any teeth. It may not have any traction. It may not make any difference. There's a passage in Psalm that I thought of this morning. Uh, 
That's one of the passages we used to sing in church. It was an old hymn, but it comes right out of the scripture. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, try me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the everlasting path. Why? Why do you and I choose to live for God? Why do we choose to practice spiritual disciplines? Why do we study the Bible and why do we pray and why do we give and why do we serve and why do we sacrifice and why do we encourage and why do we rebuke and why do we gather? Why do we go to small groups and why do we go to Sunday mornings and why do we go to camps? Why do we go to conferences? Why do we listen to what we listen to? Search me, O God, because he knows your heart. Test me and see if there's any anxious way in me and lead me in the everlasting path this morning. I'd like to stop talking and let you have just a few moments to say to God, search me and show me how my why can change to be more like Jesus and to be closer to you. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.